Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Conversation About the Men, where I'll be speaking to actor, activist and educator Cal Penn. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So you grew up the son of Indian immigrant parents and what expectations do you feel your parents had of you as a child? Because you said, I love this quote where you said, almost everybody else's kids were doing something traditional and telling <laughs> yeah. your parents you wanted to be an actor was something that was just not a frame of reference. For sure. Uh, and it's one of the, it's probably sort of one of the, uh, one of the mini arcs in the first third of my book, maybe. Um, and I was trying to figure out how to actually talk about this. So I appreciate you, you asking about it. Um, I grew up outside of New York City, right? And so I, it was essentially a suburb of the city. Most people either had one or both parents who were commuting every day to a job in, in Manhattan. The way that I describe this in the in the audiobook is that it was it's not that the town that I grew up in was ethnically necessarily diverse or racially diverse rather, but it was it was white diverse. And what I mean by that is yeah, what does white diverse yeah. mean? <laughs> so I was trying to figure out. There's probably no. I mean, there's probably far better words to describe it than that phrase. But what I meant by that was you know it wasn't uncommon for people to speak a different language at home, right? So there were there were oh. strong Italian American, Jewish American, Polish American populations, um, and a lot of my friends were also by as was I growing up. So this notion that being American was tied into only speaking English and no other language or, you know, not having parents or grandparents who came from another place, that was not my experience growing up. And I understand that that's very different from the way a lot of folks, especially a lot of kids of immigrants, grew up. That said, the real confusion, which is the root of your question, 
the real confusion for me was when I said I wanted to be an actor and the entire South Asian community seemed to respond with, but you can't do that. We're mm. in. And mm. so this idea of what it meant to that community that we go into the careers that they knew, the sciences, uh, pharmacy, engineering, et cetera, was something that I was not prepared to deal with when I was a child, you know? <laughs> did you know when you were a child that you wanted to be an actor? And how did you know that? If you didn't have frame of references or other people in your world who did it, I, how did you know that's what you wanted to do? I, I, the way I liken this answer is probably similar to the way that a lot of people who end up becoming musicians or athletes uh, decide to go for it, where there's just this thing in them that says, I kind of have to do this. Mm. I really want to do it. I loved storytelling. I loved the idea of uniting people through uh, through comedy mostly. And I mean, part of that was in eighth grade, I was the Tin Man in my school's production of The Wiz. You're welcome. Oh. I know. Adorable. Uh, but Sweet. the cool kids were not the drama kids, right? And so we used to get uh, made fun of constantly. Back in when I was in eighth grade, it was not called bullying. It was just called being in eighth grade. Yeah. Today, there's a term for it, which is nice. There uh, is a term for everything. Right. <laughs> Fair. So, uh, Although we don't know if there is another term for white diverse. I'm still thinking about no, there it. Has I think, I think you might have coined a new phrase. I quite Somebody like it. Somebody on Twitter will correct me with a lot of anger. Oh, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. We can just wait for them to do that, and then we'll hear what the correct term is. <laughs> uh, in eighth grade, because we would get made fun of for being a drama club, I remember uh, doing the school play we had to go up in front of the whole school and do three scenes from this play, which was devastating to all of us because we didn't want to get made fun of any more than we already had. And the scene that I had to do was where the Tin Man gets his heart from the Wizard of Oz or the Wiz. And so the line that's scripted is, you know, I get this yarn around my neck with a plastic heart on it because it's eighth grade production. And I say- I am visualizing eight-year-old <laughs> little Cal Penn with the Tin Man out. It's adorably me. tragic, I think. Or yeah, tragic, it is. Or <laughs> And so the line that I'm supposed to say with full innocence is all you fine ladies out there, watch out because, you know, the Tin Man is now capable of love. Instead, what I did was I walked to the edge of the stage and with full bravado, I don't know where this came from. I just said, all you fine ladies out there. And I did this pelvic thrust and I said, watch out. Oh my gosh. And everyone started screaming and applauding and laughing. And on the bus on the way home, uh, all the soccer players who used to make fun of us started applauding. And they were like, you know, we didn't realize that that's what a school play was or that that's what you were doing. That was so funny. That was so whatever. Now, problematic that like you need to make your bully laugh in order for them to stop bullying you. But that's, that's a tactic that is very effective. And you ask a lot of comedians, there's a lot of stuff that's rooted in things like exactly. This. And that was the, you know, putting on my adult brain, I kind of realized, oh, okay, so the thing that appealed to me about that was that comedy can bring people together, feel mm. these uh, things that they hadn't felt before. And it, can, and it can build bridges, right? It can connect people in a way that so many other things separate us. Sure. So what was the landscape like for you as a man of South Asian ancestry back when you first started auditioning for roles? Because I'm sure it was somewhat different, but maybe not that different. I don't know. We always think so much has changed. And then you look back, you're like, actually, it hasn't changed that much. But what was it like for you at the time? Yeah, I actually think things have changed quite a bit. And one of the reasons that there's a the subtext of my, one of the subtexts of, of this book is 
uh, how systems can and do change over time. But change is always incremental. So it's not like you're looking back a year and saying, what the hell, nothing's changed over the course of 5, 10, 15 years. Um, and I'm so happy with how those things have changed, both as a content creator, but also as somebody who loves entertainment. And I love turning on the TV and seeing things that I maybe have never seen before. Um, I'll preface, you asked about the parents, and I think in order to answer this question, I don't want to be too long-winded, but it's 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 relevant that the, one of the reasons there weren't a whole lot of uh, Indian Americans of my generation in entertainment at the time, and to be fair, there were tons but probably not on par with what you're seeing today. One of the reasons for that is the uh, immigration patterns for Asian Americans. So in 1965, roughly, uh, immigration laws in the U.S. changed to allow immigrants from Asian countries in because we had a shortage of engineers, doctors, pharmacists, um, American-born folks in those professions. And so if you were from an Asian country and pursuing a graduate degree in medicine, engineering, et cetera, you were allowed to come to America. Nobody else from these countries was allowed to come at first. Wow. And so that's why my dad's generation, my mom's generation, you know, th- they all had these advanced degrees in something related to the sciences because that's what allowed them to come to America. Come to the U.S. Yeah, this notion that they had when I was growing up of we don't do the arts, we're Indian, obviously nothing to do with culture, nothing to do with DNA. There is nothing inherently in these humans that makes them good at science. It's just that was how folks were selected to come here. So once I start going into entertainment, there is, there aren't that many people. There are plenty of people who are trying to be writers, directors, actors, who are from the Asian American community as a whole, but relatively few in positions of power. So people who are studio executives or who are working directors or writers. Who are who are the people who ultimately are making the choices and hiring yeah. people, right? And and people tend to hire people who are like them. Totally, yeah. And and uh, and also if you you know if you think about what let's forget film, let's just take TV, right? TV up until maybe ten years ago was only the traditional TV. Uh, broadcast TV networks, and those are all advertiser-driven models. I'm yes. going to totally nerd out with you for a second, right? No, no, I can totally go there with you, trust okay. me. So they're all advertiser-driven models, meaning that inherent in that model is something very archaic, where if you're pitching a TV show, the network wants to know that something similar has worked in the past, which means that things like plot, content, characters, diversity, all of that stuff is backward-looking instead of forward-looking because you need to make advertisers happy. The difference with streaming platforms is they're much less ad-driven. I mean, sure. Because they're subscriber-based. Exactly. So they can take what the networks consider a perceived risk and really shake things up in terms of the content, which is why Netflix, Amazon, Hulu have way better, more edgy content than some of the traditional TV networks. No disrespect to them. I've enjoyed working for them over the years. But Yeah, of course. I mean, and, 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 you know, I had a conversation with a friend last night about this exact challenge you know and and you know that when you're pitching to when you're pitching a show format or concept to a streamer you've just got a lot more latitude because they are subscriber based and they're not so reliant on the advertisers who also will say things like I mean for me when I pitch shows they're like well you know if it's if it's a woman protagonist that is kind of a niche audience you know and you're like well it's 52 percent of the population but okay so you know you have all those conversations which I'm sure you've had your own version of that you know being being of South Asian ancestry I'm sure it's the same thing yeah, very much so. There, there were plenty of times where, uh, I mean, I have friends who are a bit older, uh, and this is not their story, so I, I, I won't name names, but there are a couple of uh, friends who 
in the late 90s, early 2000s had pitched movies that I thought were wonderful. The scripts were great. And they were told by studios, hey, if you change the Indian characters to at least Italian or at least Jewish. <laughs> so like some- Oh, can I, can I tell you how many shows friends of mine have pitched where they've been told to change the female protagonist to a oh, guy? I'm sure, yeah. I mean, you know. I, I used to work for, um, I used to work for a producer at a big studio. He had a first look deal, mostly because his dad was an executive there. But uh, he was so chauvinistic. I remember this when I was working for him. He was so chauvinistic that I would encourage uh, my interns to take the cover page off of scripts because I knew that if it was an action movie or a drama and it was written by a woman or somebody who he thought had a, a, a female sounding name, that it wouldn't get read or it wouldn't get read with the same sincerity. Well, thank you for doing that. Um, one, of my, one of my dearest friends who is now an incredibly successful director uh, for many years uh, would send her scripts in and her name is Victoria and she changed it to Vic. Mm -hmm. Just so that people would read her scripts. Yeah. And because she is a woman and a woman of color, it was like two big checks against her <laughs> when she was pitching. And so that was one thing that she changed. And it was fascinating how people responded. Totally. It's interesting. It's also I, I I'm I'm so fascinated by these conversations today. So if if you I I uh, lecture a lot at colleges. And inevitably, this question comes up, you know, through a 2022 lens, imagine you're 19 years old, you come to an event, and people who ask things like, you know, I've heard stories about people who have to change, or, or me, I have a screen name, uh, Cal Penn is not my legal name, my legal name is Culpen Modi, K-A-L-P-E-N is my real first name. And so even conversations about that, right, and the difference, generational difference between someone saying, oh, yeah, I get that, that's the hustle, you just did what you had to do to get your foot in the door to hustle, that's maybe 10 years younger than me, but 20 years younger than me are these kids. They who say, like, no, you should not do it. That, what a sellout, blah, blah, blah. To me, totally. that is a wonderful benchmark of progress. Totally. That take for granted that that didn't have to happen, even though it did. If you take that for granted, I can think of no greater sign of progress. So you mentioned, you know, look, what we're talking about is racism on, on some level, right? And people's experience and the barrier to entry due to race. What was your experience of racism in the industry? So in my case, it was, it, I, I want to preface it by saying my favorite acting teacher was my high school acting teacher. So he, uh, I, I had the privilege of going to a publicly funded arts high school in New Jersey. Wow. The arts program. It's in a world of budget cuts, it still exists. And I'm very thankful. For, That's for incredible. Have you been back there to, oh, to yeah. talk to the yeah, kids? Yeah, I'm sure they love my, that. My acting teacher is still there as well. Amazing. Uh, and he's, he would always say like, look, if you're, no matter what you look like, if you're entering this field, if this is your profession, you have to understand that there's going to be a lot of rejection and there's going to be a lot of rejection because uh, it, maybe it has nothing to do with your merit. It's because some casting director or producer thinks you're too tall or you're too short for the part. Too whatever, fill in the blank. Whatever, fill in the blank. Too whatever, right? When I started auditioning in, in, uh, in Hollywood, I wasn't prepared for the fact that if you're a, a performer of color or a woman in many cases, uh, or both, obviously, that you don't have the luxury of being too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny. Because this other thing that is only pertaining to you or people who look like you precedes all of that. 
And so it was frustrating because while I was fully prepared to deal with the rejection of, of the too tall, too short, defensive skinny, I was not prepared mm. to deal with the rejection of, hey, you're just too ethnic and there's no place for you now. My, my good friend, Jenna Von Oy, fantastic actor, uh, she, she was on Blossom and the Parkers. Um, she, <clears throat> excuse me, she was, I think she just finished Blossom and was on the Parkers right after college. And she said, it's crazy to me that you don't have an agent or a manager yet after all these years. Can, can I please bring your, your demo reel to my manager? I, you know, she was with an A-list management company. She said, look, I don't know if they'll represent you, but at least maybe they can offer you advice or maybe they know some, some junior managers who'd be interested. And I was so thankful to her for this. So I gave her on VHS, I gave her my reel, which was really made up of like a couple of student films, but things that I was proud of a monologue that I recorded on a camcorder and she called me, I want to say like a week and a half later. And she goes, so my manager doesn't want to meet with you. And I just want to know, I don't want to offend you or anything. I just want to know sort of how much you want to know about why. And I said, well, look, I'm, I did everything I could in that demo tape. I, I'd love to know the professional advice or, of somebody who isn't interested. Like what should I have done differently? in those scenes or on that tape so that I could get represented. And she goes, well, so he said two things. He said, one, you're very, very good. And he had no reason to tell me that. So I just felt like I should pass that on. He said that you're actually really good. And I was like, cool, awesome. I feel like there's a big buck coming. And she oh, goes, no. he said, but somebody who looks like you isn't going to work regularly enough in Hollywood for it to be worth his while and his time to make the 10 or 15% commission that he would make off of his clients. And so he's just going to pass. And I was very oddly thankful for her candor because I, I, that was the moment I realized the glass ceiling is so uh, high. Low. Low, right. The, the barrier to entry is, yeah. is just, it, 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 there was nothing that I could do, right? You can't Nothing. change that. You can right. excel to, to, you can do everything you can on your, on your end of things, but there is there is this barrier to entry right. that is you what can you do about it yeah and i don't want somebody to open the door for me for the wrong reasons i just want to have a fair shot in an industry that is always going to be unfair but but at least have a shot at at that right and so it was a a, a lot of other things fell into place in terms of the calculus of i think this applies to anybody that's entering a a profession that's viewed as a monolith or that's particularly competitive you sort of map out what it is you have to do to get your foot in the door and this conversation was very helpful for me in terms of trying to figure out what i what i was willing to do to make an attempt versus just giving up i remember the first time i realized that my gender was such a monumental barrier to entry for people who do what I do. And there's nothing I can do about that. It doesn't matter that I've been doing this for so long and I'm good at what I do and I've got this body of work. My gender is still restricting. And I don't know about you, but for me, I've certainly had many moments where I'm like, how do I get past this? How do I overcome this? Have you had those moments? Oh, yeah. And I don't think there's any clear answer. There's a thing in in my book that I tried to describe, sort of like white diversity. I was trying to figure out a phrase for this. And I call this it- This is going to be our takeaway from this, <laughs> this interview. I, I call it the brown catch-22. And what the brown catch-22 was for me was, I finally did get an agent, by the way, a wonderful woman named Candace Cameron, incidentally, actor Kirk Cameron's mom. Uh, she was uh, the only person who ever responded to uh, my weekly submissions of headshots. 
And one one thing, you know, I, I, uh, I feel like in a world that's so polarizing, it's probably worth noting, you know, we always think of Hollywood as incredibly progressive and liberal and all of these things. And she remains an incredibly conservative woman. Her family's very conservative. So this notion that it's only these liberal Dems who are giving us all a hand is total BS from my experience. There I completely agree birth- with you. You know, in this industry, I just feel like it's worth noting because it, it and I don't note it to sort of stoke the fire of polarization. It's the opposite, where I just think, you know, the the opportunity to sort of look at what's happening and realize that not everything is black and white or, 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 or uh, a binary is important. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable and with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women. Take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. 
The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. So who are some of the role models that you had who inspired you? Because ultimately, if they're not people who go before us that we can look to and say, oh, that's the point of entry. This person took this route. Maybe I can follow that route. You probably didn't have that. You probably had to create your own, I'm assuming. I was was talking about what I call the brown catch-22. This is how I describe it in the book. And it's essentially this. It's that, that that first agent explained it in a way that was accurate, that uh, I, somebody who looks like me, and this is obviously late nineties, early two thousands is not really allowed to audition for anything other than sort of stereotypical one dimensional parts. And I can't get those stereotypical one dimensional parts unless I've already played those stereotypical one dimensional parts. So that's one. No one knows you can do it. They need to see that you've done it. (laughs) So that's one aspect of the Brown catch 22. The other aspect is that you can't, you know, th- this goes, this is not rocket science, but as every woman and, and person of color knows, you sort of have to work a thousand times harder than everybody else just to have a fair shot. And I'm happy to do that. I mean, that's the gig I signed up for, right? But so her point was, you're going to have to get some of those credits on your resume in order for me to be able to pitch you for bigger and better roles. So this idea that that, that catch 22 of you can't even get into this entry point without doing some of those parts at this point, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, that turned out to be true, and here's how it was true. It was true, and this correlation is one of my role models growing up, a uh, director main, named Mira Nair, who's amazing. Oh, my God, incredible. I know her because, of course, she's a woman director. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> and her generation, there were so few. Right. Mira Nair, just amazing. Oh. Oh, so when God. I was a kid, she did one of Denzel Washington's early movies called Mississippi Masala. With yes, Sir I Taylor. loved it so much. The, the actress in that, oh, my amazing. God. Yeah. <sighs> This was one of the first times I'd seen people who looked like me on screen, and it blew my mind. And I don't think I realized it until I saw the movie. The, the, the way I try to explain this to friends of mine who always had the privilege of seeing characters who looked like them on screen is that it's not, to me, about whether something is positive or negative, right? To me, it's about characters that are fully fleshed out, that are flawed, that make mistakes, that do things that are human. Human. And, I was going to say, that a human. Yeah. So Mira's film, Mississippi Masala, you had these Indi- this Indian family that that seemed like it was a lot like mine with problems. Some of them were racist. Some of them had financial problems. They fell in love. Denzel and Sarita had sex. Like these are things that you just, if you don't see, the, the only response I could come up with was when you don't see yourself on screen, you almost feel like maybe your options are limited in the world. And I didn't, I didn't feel that they were truly limited because I watched a lot of Sesame Street <laughs> and I had a good kindergarten teacher. But otherwise, you know, you sort of, you, you feel like they're limited. So 
Well, so it's almost the concept that if you can't see it, you can't be it. Because mm -hmm. you just don't know it even exists. Yeah. There's no frame of reference. Right. So Mira's, Mira's film sort of uh, was very... You know how I know that film? I interviewed Denzel Washington. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And I was, I was 16 years old. Oh. Yeah, when that film came out. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I know. That's really so speak, speaking to that, what, who were your role models? Whose oh, career so could you look to? Mira Nair was one of them. Sarita Choudhury, certainly another. Um, and then there were a lot. I, I have to say, you know, there's, um, I, I appreciate that there's so much love from folks who are like, hey, Harold and Kumar was the first movie with two Asian-American men as leads in a studio comedy. And it, and it was, and we're, we're very uh, thankful to the fans for making that movie a success. But the reality is there are, there are so many um, actors in the South Asian and Asian American community as a whole who uh, went to drama school, who work in theater companies, who do incredible work, and they just never had the opportunity to work in commercially mainstream projects. And so many of them are 5, 10, 15, 20 years older than me. They're not ever going to be household names, maybe. But they're people who helped me guide my career when I first moved to Los Angeles and who who I did play readings with, who invited me to do their play readings, rather. You know, the onus was really on somebody like that to, to say, hey, welcome to, you know, welcome to this industry where we all love being artists and, and let's sort of do this together. And I'll... Um, so I, I mentioned that because it's, it's um, thankfully there are folks you can point to like Amir and I or, or Sarita Choudhury, but the-, the Those are both women too. Totally, yeah, exactly. The, but the notion that I'm not standing on the shoulders of people who came before me is, is ludicrous. Like I, there are so many of them that I'm so thankful for. Well, I'm sure that you are the person that other people can look at now and say, okay, here's someone who's, who's got a path when, and that's pioneering, right? That's pioneering. That's, that's creating a path where one doesn't exist. Do you think that um, when you look at the kind of role models that young men have today in media, what are your thoughts on that? It's such a broad question. Cause I think it depends on what, you know, what you, what you want, what you, what, how you're consuming things. I will say that the digitization of everything has, you know, offered a, you know, pretty dangerous and sad that you can access anything at any time. I'm thinking of the Bo Burnham song. <laughs> uh, you know, that truly you can find anything awful if you want. At the same time... And kids are getting exposed to things that are awful without even trying. Yeah, right. You at the search time, the wrong thing and God knows what's going to come up. The 15, 16-year-old version of me would have been able to see how many people there are out there who have already done the thing that I'm trying to do. And so I, for all of the shit that's out there, I also just remain inspired by like, Hey, there are all of these people, you know, I just had a, a conversation with a, a younger friend yesterday, actually. Uh, he said, um, I'm about to go to grad school. And, you know, one of my goals is to, to work at the UN. And I had no idea. And I was like, really, what do you want to do with the UN? And he said some nerdy thing that I had never heard of before. And I quickly just Googled who had those types of jobs. And there's a list of like 30 people who work at the UN who have that job. I'm like, dude, next time you come to New York, you should email, like pick five of them, email them before your trip and ask if you can get coffee. I, I doubt that people email these folks and say, hey, I want to be- They may be flattered. Right? They might be fine. They might be like, I don't have time for that. That's fine too. Yeah, but ask. What Asian, great guidance. Why wouldn't you ask? I could, we didn't have that, man. Like, I, I know. You know, so, so I am, for all of the crap that's out there, I, I also remain very um, inspired by what technology 
can offer us in terms of, of and allows us right allows us access um you came out publicly late last year and announced your engagement to your partner of 11 years josh congratulations thank you thank you how did that feel to yeah come out? So, uh i i will say i did not think very naively i understand why it was naive now uh, I didn't think that I was writing a coming out chapter, to be perfectly honest. There are two chapters in the book that um, have nothing to do with merit. So the entire book is how systems change and how, you know, I wanted to write something for the 25-year-old version of me. Editors call, uh, like, fun chapters that have nothing to do with the narrative. They call them palate-cleansing chapters. So it's just sort of like, oh, interesting. Write, write a standalone story. So there are two. One is how my partner Josh and I met uh, and how we connected over NASCAR races and camping. Um, I love that. Car. My dad is a race car driver, so I connect Wait, with people oh, over race car, uh, what, uh, racing too. Racing? What, is, what association? Or what? Um, he raced at Le Mans, which is an endurance wow. race for 18 years. Wow. Yeah. So I grew up at racetracks and anyone that wants to right. talk about so yet all of Formula the One, yeah, all of it. It's like I can all the stuff that goes along with it, right? All of it. Yeah. So this was a, just a random story about a date gone wrong. The other story that has nothing to do with merit is uh wait, how did the date go wrong? Oh, Cause so because you're, so you're engaged first, to be married. Yeah, yeah. So one of the first dates basically he uh he shows up at my apartment with an 18 pack of Coors Light beer. And I had SpongeBob SquarePants on the TV because I'm a giant man child. And he comes in with no sense of irony, picks up my remote control and changes the channel to a NASCAR race. And my first thought was, this guy is going to leave in 20 minutes with 16 of those beers because this is obviously not going to work out. Um, and then we started wow. a conversation about how uh, NASCAR races for a lot of families are the time where they can relatively inexpensively be together, go on camping trips around either in the racetrack or around the racetrack uh, and just spend time together. And that was something I could relate to because as the son of immigrants, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So one of our family vacations was camping with other families throughout the Northeast. We'd pack up the station wagon, go camping. And so suddenly it, it was like this, huh, that's actually a really thoughtful, interesting conversation and you're very charming. And so does uh, he have camping experience? Uh, yeah, I guess we, but you know, we both grew up camping. So, is that something that you've done in your relationship? Go camping? Uh, we have not gone camping yet. We gone to gone to plenty of NASCAR races, but we haven't been camping. Oh my gosh, I'm having a thought that that could be something that could be something you could do together. Oh, I yeah. don't know about you, but like, I'm married for 20 years, and I'm always trying to think of like what is a good date, think something to do with my oh. husband that like I haven't done like 50 times before. And camping could be a good one for you. We've done a lot of hiking, kayaking. Like we like outdoors stuff but uh the full the full camping we should do we should actually do with the family if my parents yeah are right but so the uh you know we we'd been engaged for the last four years and i so i just didn't think very naively it was that chapter and a chapter about um going to a strip club for a friend's bachelor party in vegas and having sort of a philosophical conversation with one of the ladies who worked there but it uh, wasn't just a friend it was it was the team that you took to the strip club, right? No, no, no. So there are two strip club mentions in the book. Uh, thank you for reading it, by the way. The one that you're referring to, we never ended up going, thank God. That was uh, when I started working in Washington, D.C. I was going to I was going to get my hair cut. Okay, and but when you started working in Washington, D.C., let's be clear, this was for the Obama administration. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the barber... I wasn't paying full attention. And he said, I own a tapas bar. You should come. You should go to your whole office. And I'm like on my Blackberry doing work. 
And so I just said, yeah, yeah, no, I'd love to come. That's so great. And he gave me his card. And it wasn't until I got home that I saw that it said um, Rodolfo's Ladies Topless Bar. Oh, and I my God. fathomed that he would be inviting a White House office to a, to a topless bar. So hilarious. I had to tell my supervisor what had happened in case like Politico found out about it or something. But we didn't end up going, obviously. But the point about your the 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 point about that, I guess. That, so maybe there are three stories that have nothing to do with anything. The the story about uh, Josh and I, I didn't realize you know, until the, the book comes out. And then all of a sudden there are all these like all these articles that basically feel like they read as follows gay Cal Penn, gay, gay writes only gay book about only gay. And I was like, huh, that's actually not at all what I thought. I mean, it's not what the book's about. <laughs> um, I mean, naive on my part, I should have just given that chapter to like the New Yorker or the Atlantic six months before to totally. be like, Oh, if y'all need to get this identity stuff out of your system. Please go for it. Um, but I'm very, obviously very proud to share that story. It just was, it, it had caught me off guard for that reason. And I, I recognize now, obviously, if you're somebody in the public eye, the presumption from folks is if you haven't publicly shared a part of your life, they presume that you're either uncomfortable or embarrassed by it. And exactly. And, and, and because historically, there are many actors who hid the fact oh, that they were course. gay out yeah. of fear yeah. that it would hurt their ability to be cast yeah. in film. So people For must sure. have assumed that about you. For sure. And in my case, it couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, the, the uh, it's really out of respect to Josh. We've been together 11 years and he hates the limelight, hates photos, all of that stuff. So I was like, cool. Yeah. I mean, he'll always come to premieres and work events and dinners and the whole thing with me, but um, is always like, I'm going to go inside the side door and just meet you at the table. You know, the, the normal people stuff. So yeah, really normal people stuff, because who wants to put themselves through yeah. that other <laughs> exactly. stuff if you don't, if you're not getting paid to do it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, you saying that you talking about having, you know, multiple passions in life. And I love that you talk about being able to do more than one thing and that that should be acceptable. I have a career that is also, like I said, I'm a photographer. Um, I, you know, I've been interviewing people for years and I think it is possible to have multiple, um, you know, abilities and skills and be able to invest and, and discover what those and develop those things. But when I think about you as an actor and also being part of Obama's administration, there's quite a big gap in between those two. And I'm wondering how you got involved in politics and specifically his campaign. Um, because, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not, they're not commonly things you put together no for sure and look for for folks listening if the only thing you know about me is that i played a stoner three times and then worked for barack obama you're probably like how the hell were you remotely qualified very fair question uh so in my case i i, I had no plans to work in in politics at all um olivia wilde wonderful actor and director uh was on house with me so she knocked on my dressing room door one day in October of 2007 and said, hey, I have a plus one to this Barack Obama event. Do you want to come? And I said, no. And she said, but you were reading his book last week. And I was like, yeah, I read a lot of books. It doesn't mean I want to go meet the people whose books I read. Like I was reading a book about Dick Cheney. It doesn't mean I want to go to a Dick Cheney. Right. Uh, and she goes, um, okay, but like you have a lot in common with him politically. I was like, what is this campaign event though? Like this guy is down 30 points in the polls in Iowa against Hillary Clinton and John Edwards and 10 other Democrats. There are also 12 Republicans running for their nomination. I just, I, this is going to be one of those LA political events. I yeah. Who wants to go to that? Yeah. Um, and I think she, she got me to go. She was a persistent, but B she was like, it's an open bar. I was like, I'm in. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> I'll drink rich people's wine. Why not? <laughs> so, uh, 
I go to this event uh, and um, I had basically, I had realized, all right, it's an event for artists. I think there were like 50 artists and they're plus ones. That all there for the open bar. All that for the open bar. Um, and look, I, the, the short version of the story is I was just really inspired by uh, what I saw there and the fact that this was a politician who, there were no TV cameras or anything and he was just sort of speaking like a normal person, not shying away from talking about policy. So I, Olivia, uh, Tatiana Ali, and Megalyn Ichikanwake, all four of us, so three ladies and me, signed up to uh, volunteer for Obama. We just decided we would give a weekend, um, which I think then happened in November or December, uh, on the campaign. So we went to Iowa for what was supposed to be two days. For canvassing. For canvassing and doing some youth events. Um, and I stayed. I ended up staying. Uh, Obama wins Iowa, and I ended up getting the chance to go to 26 or 25 other states on, on the campaign's behalf. And, and when you start out on any political campaign that's really fledgling or is very small, as it expands quickly, you're, you end up being entrusted with more and more because you were there early. Um, and so after uh, he became the president-elect, there, there was a, an email that went out that basically said, if you'd like to apply for a job at the White House, click on this link and upload your resume. And if you're qualified, someone from will change.org or something, right? Gov. Yes. Gov. So I did that and I didn't tell anybody that I had applied because I was on a, I was on house. I loved being on that show. The only person I told was my, my acting manager, uh, who I have had for 20 years. Um, wow. And he's a, uh, wonderful guy. He, I describe him in the book as, um, every, uh, character from the HBO show Entourage in one person. Oh my God. He is a ludicrous human being with a heart of gold, who is also a lion, who is like all of the things, you know, it's just like, it, but, but incredibly loyal and, 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 and trustworthy. So, uh, so I told him that was it and nobody called. So I just assumed, well, I'm not qualified. So nobody called. And I, I, uh, had the chance. But to you were willing to quit your house to go do it, right? Well, I hadn't really thought it through, you know, I just sort of thought like when on earth would the son of immigrants even have a shot at applying for a job, serving your country for the first black president? Like it just, it, it was like, at least put your name in. If you're qualified, they'll call Throw you. your name in the hat. Yeah. What are you going to not? And I truly just thought, I, you know, I didn't want to call in any favors. I didn't want to make it seem like I was asking to put my thumb on the scale or anything. Like right, that. right. Uh, and nobody called. And then during inauguration, I was asked to be part of the inaugural concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, they must have, that family must have disliked you because they invited you. They invited me, and also we knew each other early on, right? The October 2011 yeah. was when, when nobody thought that Obama was a viable candidate. So my manager came with me to this concert, and there was a green room in the back where you got to say hello to the incoming first family. And uh, Mrs. Obama said something like, uh, hey, well, I hope you continue to stay involved. Thank you for everything. And I said, of course, I definitely plan to. And my manager goes, well, you know he applied for a job, right? Oh, I and love I your like, manager. Oh, no, dude, don't. You don't bring this up here. This is like a festive, fun event. You know, it's a celebration. And don't Mrs. be Obama gauche is, and bring that up yeah, here. Totally. Embarrass me right, right now. You can do this on HBO's Entourage. Just <laughs> <in here. laughs> and Mrs. Obama says, what do you mean? And I was like, no, 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 no he means nothing. And and Dan, my manager, goes, no, no, no. He, he applied for a job at the White House. And nobody even called him back. 
And so then she goes, what are you talking about? Mrs. Obama, can you follow up on this for us, please? Yeah. Because no one bothered to get back to me. That's the very least they could do. (laughs) She, She looks at me and goes, who did you apply with? And I just blurted out, I put my resume on change.gov. To which then she, like, whether you love or hate uh, Michelle Obama, you recognize- I the, love her. Well, I know you and I do. I'm just saying, yeah. listening. Listeners, yeah. Your politics are irrelevant to the story. The <laughs> the uh, yeah. look she gave me was like, you know, she's such a low threshold for bullshit. And so the look she gave me was like, what the hell are you talking about? So she called the president-elect over and she goes, Barack, come here. And so he comes back over and she goes, tell him what you just told me. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I couldn't possibly repeat. And he's like, what's up? I said, well, look, I was just I was just mentioning Mrs. Obama. I applied for a job at the White House. If I could be helpful and if I'm qualified, I would love to do it. And he goes, oh, who'd you apply with? <laughs> and so I said, then I begrudgingly was like, look, I didn't want to bother anybody. So I put my resume on change.gov. And he was a little more amused than she was by this. And he called over his his personal aide, Reggie Love, who was a, uh, a friend of mine, and said, look, you guys have each other's numbers, right? Like, he'll remind me about this, and we'll try to figure out, you know, we're still hiring a bunch of positions, but are you serious about this? And I said, yes, of course. And I tell this story in more detail in the audiobook and the book because, A, obviously it's a ridiculous story, the leader of the free world uh, and my manager and these worlds colliding. But the bigger reason that I tell the story is that aside from all of that, here's the real lesson for me there. Um, if you're, if you're working for a small startup or a small organization for a year, year and a half, and that organization, let's say it's a company that gets bought out and you're the CEO remains the CEO. Let's say it's something, an organization that expands astronomically. If you are proud of the work that you did, which I was, if you would love to continue to be helpful in that organization, which I wanted to be, you can't just submit your resume and think that the algorithm or the intern who's charged with flagging resumes is going to actually do something about it. You have to make your voice heard and let people know that you value the work that you've done. And so here I was thinking, put your head down, don't shake shit up. Right. Don't, don't be, don't be arrogant about it and don't be assumed that they want to hire you. Right. And And you're saying, make yourself known, make it known that you want to be involved. What was clear in both the president and the the first lady uh, response to, to what I was saying was that I assume from their perspective, they couldn't tell whether I was serious. So, you know, any boss might assume, well, if you just uploaded your resume, you probably wanted to just check the box. Right. But if you actually were serious about this, you would call people and, and mobilize your networks. So it's almost this opposite. Like on the one hand, there's imposter syndrome, right? I can't believe that I'm here. I can't believe that I'm allowed to do this thing. In the room, yeah. Words, right? They haven't kicked and me out. <laughs> the flip side to that is like people who have a job for six months and then whine about their, why they're not the vice president of the company yet. It was like the yeah. reality lies somewhere in, in somewhere between. in between. And I needed to learn that lesson. I was very thankful, obviously, for, for all of their, their help and leadership there. So how was that for you, making that transition from being an actor into working in the White House? Uh, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I remain very humbled by that opportunity. I, you know, I, um, I, I had gone to grad school for international security, 
because I'm a nerd and I have an interest in that. Um, I had never really talked about it in interviews or anything before, not because I'm embarrassed of it, but because <laughs> it's like, this is my thing. Yeah. Uh, and so the combination of that, I had taught uh, a college uh, course at the time. Um, it just so happened that in the public engagement office, which was the outreach office, they had still not hired um, three positions that they really only had salary to pay one person for. And that was the president's point person on outreach to young Americans, uh, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and the arts community. Those were three separate jobs. Incidentally, three jobs that I had had on the campaign and three jobs that I had had private sector experience or an educational background in. So um, I, the decision to take a full sabbatical from acting and to, to work in government was a real, you know, I, I, an incredible opportunity to serve your country. Also, like, the jokey but for real answer is like, what are you going to say after all that? Like, no, Mr. President, actually, I have another stoner movie to make. So like, yeah, yeah. You. But I sort of thought, look, for a year and a half, uh, I had gone to these 26 states and had done campaign events where I essentially told other people that they should. The vote. reason why they should be focusing and, so and like, believing maybe, in this man. Yeah, maybe do put your head down and, and help uh, help achieve the goals that you said we would achieve, you know? So that's I mean, I find I find the political world so interesting when I was first exposed to I interviewed Senator Kirsten Gillibrand many years ago and then I also worked on her uh, election campaign when she was running to be nominated and um, and and previously I had worked with her when um, Vice President Kamala Harris was the Attorney General so I had been working with Kamala since back then. And um, I just found it fascinating because I did not grow up in that world. And it was something that I did not know. But I certainly was inspired and motivated by both of those women. Um, and and lent, you know, my time and however I could be of service um, in whatever capacity I could. But it is such a different world. And once you've lived in or you've been around the kind of yep. inner workings of those communities. It's like, it's like no other community, you know, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And I don't know, did you experience this also? So one of, you know, the, uh, because I had left a TV show to go work for the white house, there were a lot of articles ab about this and the feeling was, wow, Cal Penn is the only person who's leaving a private sector job in the history of the world to ever go. And yet there's so many people thousands, on those campaigns. Who leave, yeah. Yeah. Who leave yeah. their jobs to do that. I know. And it, th that was the really inspiring thing for me was that really regardless of which administration or what, I mean, the, whether it was the Clintons or Bushes or Trump or, or, or Obama, there were plenty of people who left their private sector job for, yeah years four years eight in the case of well it was because you left an entertainment job totally. that's the yeah. thing yeah, and also look in in fairness if you're talking about the clintons or bushes there was a, a bit more of a traditional path to them yes. becoming uh presidents right and so you had especially a little more of traditional party establishment that they had crafted along the way versus a trump or obama where it was really full party outsider well i mean especially in the case of trump but even even obama junior senator from illinois not particularly well liked a lot of people thought well you have to wait in line to be president so the people who work for those campaigns early there are thousands of them who take leave of leaves of absence is that your experience too when you've done this political work like i'm just so inspired by all these people yeah there are so many incredible people who have worked on, on these different campaigns um i spent some time on the bernie campaign and they let me document um the the campaign trail 
And Jane Sanders, Bernie's wife, said to me, okay, you can come with us and the family, you can travel in the vans, on the tour, you can be in our hotel rooms, and you can document everything for a documentary that I was shooting. Um, but she said, but you, only you can come. I was like, but I need a sound person and a camera operator. And she said, no, I'm sorry, I can't, for, for security purposes, yeah. like, we know you, we trust you, and you can have complete access, but only you can come. <laughs> and so I ended up for that campaign trail, strapping a, a camera to a chest mount and having like a, a, a sound, like a mic, a boom that was attached to that. And I went everywhere with them and got wow. the most insane footage. Wow, amazing. That's amazing. So, um, do you have any plans to do anything else in politics? Because it sounds like that was a good experience for you. Yeah, it was a great experience. I, you know, I, I don't have the personality to run for office, so that's not something that uh, that I. Oh would God, I don't run. either. <laughs> yeah. Hell no. The the things that I I really have enjoyed, and I, look, I've I've made no secret of this. One of my dream jobs, I would love to be an ambassador. You know, I would love to combine my private sector arts experience, my uh, cultural diplomacy policy background and all of that in, into something like that at, at some point. Um, and then I, I'm really right now enjoying helping uh, friends and people who I admire really at the local and state level as well. There are so many incredible people. You know, I used to live in L.A. Uh, L.A. City Council has uh, folks like Nithya Raman who have, have been amazing. My friends are on Mumbani in the um, New York State Assembly. Um, there's just there's, it's a really exciting time in, in local politics and these are the folks who are going to be the pipeline for um, statewide and, and, and national office in the decades to come. Well, so that is an advisory role. That, so that's an unofficial advisory role and, and lending your experience and your perspective and your expertise, right? Yeah, it's just, there, there's so many good people doing really exciting things who I think because of the culture of how our TV is made and how Twitter works, you, you don't hear about them that often. Um, elevate those voices yeah and especially when they're doing really interesting work in in places that matter you know the um one of the big takeaways from working in the particularly the obama administration was that the political reality of governance is that you're never going to get 100 percent of what you want that doesn't mean you don't try for 500 percent of what you want but it means that you have to recognize that even 30 40 percent is a success that can be built upon and you should celebrate that success because if you didn't try for the 500%, you're not going to get that that 20 or 30%. And that consensus mm -hmm. building in a democracy is necessary. It might not feel good. You might be like, what the fuck? I wanted this thing and I don't have it because of these other people. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the truth. Well, this is a good this is a good, this is a good uh philosophy for life, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But if you, you don't know? try, I mean, gosh, can you You'll never know? Well, of course you're not going to get anything out of it. Yeah. I completely agree. Um, it has been such a treat to talk to you. I want to thank you so very much. I just have a couple more questions that yeah. I ask everybody at the end. Sure. Yeah. Um, all right. How do you define the word feminist? I. You can pass if you want. No, of course I'm not going to pass. I mean, um, it, ever since I was a kid, it was just, here's the thing. By the way, sorry, I'm not trying to deflect the question. How would I? No, I know you're not. You're thinking uh, about uh, how you want to respond to it, and I, I mean, respect that. Uh, e e equality amongst uh, amongst folks of of all all genders was would sort of how be how I would define that. The reason that I had sort of given pause was that um, 
my so my grandparents marched with Gandhi when they were younger, and so the stories that we heard growing up were about how grandma and grandpa would get thrown in jail and beaten by British soldiers and and things like that. And so the the nine year old version of me was just like, there grandpa goes again, another <laughs> story about Gandhi, right? And as you get older, what I recognized was that certain things that people have very specific words for, whether it's politics, public service, uh, certain certain terms. To us growing up, that was just called doing the right thing, or it was just right. called family values. So a lot of times I hesitate before answering a specific question of, about what a word means to folks, because my upbringing was that of, you know, Gandhian grandparents, uh, incredibly strong women and men in, in our family who um, only later in life did I realize, oh, not everybody believes this equality thing, or not everyone's even willing to put their lives on the line for it like my my grandparents did. That Anyway, that's the only reason there was a bit of a problem. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, explain what toxic masculinity means to you. Oh, man. <laughs> toxic, what does toxic masculinity mean to me? Um, the notion that your masculinity is tied to things that to me have like nothing to do with it like the idea that a you either it's more it's more descriptive for me either a like the idea that you have to put somebody down to make yourself feel better the idea that like your masculinity is tied to eating a dead animal i'm not a vegan but like just the notion like oh is that a fucking veggie burger what the fuck man like I'm like oh does that does that make you feel insecure as a man like you feel like you have to have the beef burger in order to feel like you're a man. I I don't envy whatever insecurity you're feeling, right? So to me, really, toxic masculinity is is a form of insecurity that I don't fully comprehend. <laughs> Why is the WNBA not as popular as the NBA? No, I don't know, but it should be. Um, how do you spell patriarchy? Like the actual spelling? Yeah, the actual spelling. <laughs> oh, P, patriarchy. Um, by the way, I'm going to be the only brown person in the history of spelling bees to get something wrong. Patriarchy. P-A-T-R-I-A-R-C-H-Y? Yes, you did it. Oh, all right, there we go. <laughs> Last one. Do you know the current status on Roe v. Wade? Yes, of course. What is it? The the that it has been repealed federally? Yeah. Do people not know that? Some people. Yeah. I didn't expect I expected you to. Here's um, one uh well, you didn't even ask me about this, but um, you can answer a question that I didn't ask because I want to know what you're going to say. What I was going to say was um and only because this has come up in the context of Roe v. Wade and other conversations that, that um, you know, I assume uh, a former President Trump is going to run for office again. Uh, the the idea that um, that he was worse policy-wise than other Republicans who we find more palatable is complete bullshit. Trump succeeded at doing what Reagan and the Bushes wanted in terms of Roe v. Wade and in terms of a lot of other things. It's just that he was better at doing it. But like, we should not be have these absurd blinders on to assume that other Republicans don't stand for the same bullshit policy-wise. So like, we should not 
feel complacent and say, well, this person is just crazy. So let's not vote for them. The other Republican is fine. It's like, no, just look at policy wise. And I'm not trying to drag any Republicans at all. I'm actually saying the contrary, that, that Trump was phenomenally successful in getting Republican policy accomplished in ways that other Republicans had not been able to. And so I just would take that as a warning sign of when people say they stand for something like former Republican presidents had, believe them and you know, make sure you're registered to vote accordingly. There's too much focus on how Biden is doing versus this midterm election that's coming up. Those I was going to say, we need to be focusing on midterms. Yes, they're really going to determine, uh, uh, I mean, A, they're going to- Especially now jurisdiction has gone to yeah. on a state-by-state basis, and right. who we elect in those states is everything. Yeah. So it's important to look at and make, you know, make sure you're registered to vote. Most of the deadlines I don't think have, have passed. Make sure you're uh, you're going to the polls. If you know folks who have a hard time voting, make sure they're, they've got that absentee ballot, the mail-in ballot. You live in a state where that's not possible. Babysit their kids so they can go vote, take them to the polls. You know, all of that stuff really matters. Thank you for bringing that up. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Sorry for the tangents. No, I appre- I really do appreciate that. Thank you. And um, thanks for your time. Again, Thank I really, you. what yeah, a, what a, what a joy to speak to you. Likewise. And I will uh, be watching you from afar and cheering you on. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. Bye, Cal. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.